0: The going viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice.
1: HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 21st of July. Professor Michael Toole distills the flood of information about COVID into the key developments relevant to primary care. He will explain new research which shows the latest Omicron strains are more able to infect people who have been vaccinated and multiple infections can cause future serious illness. Current ATAGI developments, especially with regard to boosters, will be summarised
0: as well as important upcoming developments. Hi, I'm Professor Mike Toole, a retired epidemiologist and an Associate Principal Research Fellow at the Burnett Institute. Now today, uh, we're going to focus mainly on um, COVID-19, looking at trends in Australia, current control measures, um, vaccination coverage in Australia, and also the benefits of third and fourth doses. We'll look at COVID-19 reinfections, the use of oral antivirals um, and then look at long COVID before wrapping up with um, what I believe is the best way forward in Australia using a vaccines plus strategy. I'll finish with just a very brief update on some other infectious diseases prevalent in Australia, Uh, influenza, of course, monkeypox, Japanese encephalitis and diphtheria. This is a very small update or summary of the situation in Australia. Cases are going up in all um, states and territories except uh, in the ACT where they are um, stable. Um, That's actually on the left, hospitalisations. Using the whole population, 81% of people have had two doses, which I don't consider fully vaccinated, 86% of those aged five and above have had two doses. The booster rate across the country is just under 70%, which is much lower than it should be. You can see the percent of hospital beds occupied by people with COVID has been on a roller coaster since January, but the the trend at the moment is upwards. So this is looking at Australia's COVID cases um, announced daily and the red line is the seven-day average. Um, you can see the peak in January was close to 100,000 cases. At the moment, after two peaks um, in April and May, this current surge has reached around 40,000 new cases a day. The trend in hospitalizations due to COVID-19 is even more dramatic than the cases. Cases are probably underestimated because some people are not getting tested and others test positive but aren't reporting it, whereas hospitalisation figures are very accurate. And you can see that the number of people in hospital in Australia is approaching that peak in January during the summer. But of course, the impact on hospitals is worse during the winter when we have um, high rates of influenza as well as other respiratory viruses like RSV. Now, here's one example of a very dramatic increase in hospitalizations. It's in Tasmania. Um, you can see that the number of hospital cases has doubled, more than doubled, in just two weeks. Um, Tasmania also has the highest per capita case rate. This may have been fueled by the uh, Dark MoFo Festival where there are a large number of indoor events where almost nobody wore a mask. Deaths per day are also gradually increasing. Um, You can see the peak in in January was um, just over 80 per day on average, um, and you can see it's up to 40 now. If I may make a comment, while the hospitalisation rate has increased, the percentage of those people in ICU is pretty stable. It's not as high as in January. And that may be due to the impact of people being vaccinated either twice or three times or even four times um, compared with January. This is the global picture from the New York Times. You can see that globally, of course, the, the biggest peak during the pandemic was in December, January, February. Um, but you can see also now that there's increasing cases. This is largely attributed to the dominance of the BA4 and BA5 subvariants of Omicron. Uh, down the bottom, you can see that uh, the number of cases over 14 days increased by 23% um, in the last fortnight, and deaths increased by a similar amount. Now, if you look at this map, um, where, which is colour coded, the darker the colour, the higher the rate of new infections per million population. And you can see Australia is a hot spot. It currently has around the fifth highest rate of new cases per capita in the world. Other countries in our region that have high rates include New Zealand, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan and Japan. Now, control measures in Australia have largely been eased, uh, but there's some variation by jurisdiction. International arrivals no longer need to be um, vaccinated, and nor do they have to provide a negative PCR test. Vaccination mandates have been dropped across the country, except for healthcare and aged care workers. Mask mandates remain only in public transport and they are not enforced. So it's it's really not a mandate if it's not enforced. And also healthcare workers and aged care workers. People who test positive must isolate for seven days. And we've seen a lot of discussion in the past week about those people, if they're um, casual workers or don't have any sick leave to be compensated by the government. And on Saturday, the prime minister announced that that pandemic leave payment would be introduced um, at least until September. Federal and state governments have been investing in promoting third and fourth dose boosters as well as uh, vaccine, vaccination in children. And you may have seen some of the um, ads on TV. Now, there's, the Oxford University measures something uh, called the stringency index. It looks at nine different interventions ranging from closed schools to lockdowns to mandated masks, et cetera. If you focus on the red line in each of those countries, you can see that the trend has been downwards. Um, So a high score means a lot of restrictions, very stringent, and a low score means um, very few restrictions. So you'll note every country there, except the United States, surprisingly, has come down to a a score of around 20, including Australia. Bloomberg has a different take on um, stringency. They're looking at resilience and Bloomberg has a focus on economics and they're looking at how well countries are emerging from the lockdown days of 2020 and 2021. So Australia ranks number nine uh, out of 53 countries. But if you look at that column, um, monthly cases per 100,000, Australia is the highest in uh, the top 20. If you look at the next column, our death rate is uh, much lower than a lot of other countries. Now, the right-hand column is misleading because it's looking at total deaths over the, the course of the pandemic. But if you look at the last month, Australia is also in the top five countries in the world with the highest death rate per capita. Now let's look at um, how we're doing in Australia in terms of COVID vaccination. This is again from the New York Times and they look at the percentage of the total population. That's so they can compare um, different countries. And so around 84% of the total population has had two doses, 54% have had uh, a, a one booster, and only about 11% have had a fourth dose. Now, in this table, uh, I've got, by state and territory, the percentage of the population that has had three doses. Now, fourth, four doses, it's difficult to find state-by-state, data, but only 62% of um, people over the age of 65, which was the previous eligibility criterion, um, have had that fourth dose. And then we've got children. If you look at the first column, there's a big difference between Queensland, only 64% have received a third dose, and West Australia, where 83% have um, received that third dose. And if you look across to children 5 to 11 that have had two doses, it's 40% nationally, but only 32% in Queensland. So Queensland's not doing very well in terms of vaccination. And then you go down to the ACT, where 69% of children uh, 5 to 11 have had two doses. What are the benefits of third and fourth vaccine doses? There's now quite a lot of evidence, I'll just point out some of it. The first strong evidence for the effectiveness of a third dose came from Israel back in October last year. Israel was the first country in the world to introduce a third dose. And a very large study found that compared with two doses, three doses were 93% effective against infection and uh, hospitalization. Now, the only Australian study, which was done in Greater Sydney uh, earlier this year, before the BA4, BA5 variant, subvariants emerged, found that a third dose provided 65% more protection against hospitalisations and deaths than two doses, and it was greater than that in people over the age of 70. Again, Israel provided us with the first data uh, on the effectiveness Uh, of a fourth dose in people over the age of 60. There was also another study in Canada, and they found that a fourth dose reduced the rate of hospitalization by between 70 to 80% compared with those who'd only had a third dose. And this is due to the waning of immunity from um, the third dose over four to five months. A different study in Israel of healthcare workers that were younger than 60, found that the fourth dose boosted immunity to about the same level as just after a third dose. There was no observed reduction in hospitalizations, partly due to the very low numbers of hospitalizations in both groups, the people that got a fourth dose and those that didn't. Now, if you look at Australia, I think here's a very clear um, a picture of the impact of vaccine booster rates. So in West Australia, third dose booster rate, 83%. Queensland, 64%. The cumulative COVID-19 death rate in West Australia is 0.4 per thousand, the lowest in the country. And in Queensland, it's one per thousand. And the proportion of active cases in hospital in West Australia is 0.8% compared with Queensland, 2%. So if you get infected in Queensland with COVID you're two and a half times more likely to end up in hospital and or die than in West Australia. Uh, Let's look at COVID-19 reinfections. It's been clear for some time that reinfections are more common from an Omicron infection than with previous strains. The UK Office for National Statistics estimated that reinfections the Omicron variant have been seven times higher than during Delta. Australia does not have a system to uh, report reinfections. The evidence on severity of reinfections remains contradictory and controversial. So in a recent preprint, a very large study of US veterans uh, found that reinfections cause more severe illness than first infections, measured by a range of adverse outcomes, um, hospitalisations and deaths. But the study has been criticised because the group studied was already at much higher risk of experiencing worse outcomes compared with the overall population. And that's because they have a much lower vaccination rate, higher smoking rate and um, higher rates of things like diabetes and their median age is around 60 Another large study in the UK found actually that reinfections were associated with lower death rates than first infections. So what's the lesson for you? Uh, It's important to advise patients that if they've had one infection does not mean they won't get reinfected. And therefore they must be up to date with their uh, vaccine boosters, whatever they're eligible for, and to make sure they get tested if they develop symptoms further after one month. Oral antivirals, there have been two approved in Australia, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir or Lagavirio, for people over the age of 70 and for others with defined risk factors for severe illness. Both of these antivirals should be started within five days of first-feeling symptoms. Ongoing clinical trials suggest Paxlovid is about 70% in, uh, effective in reducing hospitalizations or deaths in people with a standard risk of severe illness. Uh, but it's contraindicated in a lot of people, people with liver and kidney disease and people on a very broad range of other medications. So in Australia, it's been more common to prescribe um, Molnupiravir. Um, Now, it only lowers the the risk of COVID hospital stays or death by about 30%. But its advantage is it has very few contraindications other than pregnancy. Long COVID, COVID itself is a multi-system disease um, with about 5 to 30% of the population experiencing some symptoms or disability due to long-term health effects and that can be fatigue, difficulty in breathing, um, and cognitive dysfunction. Many organs may be affected. The range of estimates reflects the use of different definitions. But the WHO defines uh, long COVID as the persistence of symptoms more than three months after the initial infection and lasting at least two months. One new case study found a 4.5% rate of long COVID after Omicron compared with 11% after Delta. But because we're seeing much higher numbers of Omicron infections, that will translate into high numbers of affected patients. This year, there have been around 8 million Omicron infections in Australia, which at a rate of just 5%, the the lower end of the estimates, would see 400,000 cases of long COVID, which could overwhelm our health system, lead to a lot of absenteeism. Vaccination may reduce long-term symptoms by around 15%. There's no evidence of an association between risk factors for severe acute COVID illness, like diabetes, obesity, smoking, high blood pressure, and the development of long COVID, so there are no predictive risk factors. Experience, mainly in the US, so far suggests the need for special multidisciplinary clinics, providing as necessary pain relief, breathing exercises, physiotherapy, and cognitive therapy. Many clinical trials are being planned to test various drugs and interventions, and the US government has provided 1.2 billion US dollars to the NIH to conduct such trials. The Royal Australian College of GPs, supported by the National COVID 19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, has developed treatment guidelines which are online. Now, given the suboptimal booster and child vaccination rates in Australia, it makes public health sense to take a multi pronged approach to reducing transmission in the community. That will reduce both hospitalisations and deaths and also long COVID, um, which I think so far in Australia, we haven't taken uh, very seriously. So while continuing to actively promote third and fourth boosters, other non-intrusive measures should include strongly promoting and or mandating indoor masks, we know they're effective, invest in improved indoor ventilation, continue test and isolate strategy, with improved access to PCR testing, so that people will find out they're infected earlier than is the case with um, rats. And improved access for those eligible to oral antivirals. In the US, pharmacists can prescribe um, antivirals um, based on in situ uh, positive rapid antigen tests, but that's not the case here. Methods to reduce the concentration of SARS-CoV-2 particles in indoor air include ventilation, filtration, and disinfection, for example, by ultraviolet light. For example, a 2020 study that included 169 Georgia elementary schools. The incidence was 39% lower in the 87 schools that improve ventilation compared with those that didn't. Victoria is the only state in Australia, maybe to some extent, ACT, that has significantly invested in better ventilation in schools. There's a lot of evidence on the effectiveness of indoor masks. One of the most recent uh, papers was a modelling study that found when masks are used at population rates of 80% for those over 65 years, and 60% for those under 65 years. Face masks are associated with a 69% reduction for cloth masks and 78% reduction for respiratory masks in cumulative COVID-9 infections. Now, that was a controlled study in um, this real-world study um, spanning 92 regions, so it was um, um, looking at many, many studies. 92 regions and six continents that found a population rates of 50%, it's without disaggregating by age, led to a mean reduction in community transmission of 19%. And a modelling study uh, in Melbourne by Burnett found that a reduction of the order of 19% or 20% in transmission could save 2,000 lives across Australia. really important for GPs to point out to patients the need to wear respiratory masks, N95 or P2, rather than cloth or ill-fitting surgical masks. Now, I'll just finish up with very briefly looking at influenza. Um, Influenza this year peaked in and June, so earlier than usual. There've been almost 190,000 reported cases Um, up until 3rd of July, and that exceeds the five-year average for this early period of winter. There have been 1,300 hospital admissions, um, 6% admitted to ICU, and 113 deaths, so much fewer than um, the uh, deaths due to COVID. 2022, so far, it's mainly children. five to nine, under five, and teenagers that have the highest rates. Of the uh, 1,195 samples referred to the WHO Collaborating Centre, 99% of influenza A, 96% of H1N1, 96% of H3N2, and the influenza B Victoria sample were characterised as antigenically similar to the corresponding vaccine components, which is very good news. And there you can see the red line is 2022. There's been a sharp decline in notifications from GPs. Um, That peak was almost the same as the five year average, um, but well below the peak in 2017. Monkeypox, there have been 33 cases confirmed um, you can see in various states and territories um, there have been more than 11,000 cases reported in 66 countries, 80% in Europe, and the trend is upwards. All three deaths were in Africa. Incubation period 7 to 14 days and the symptoms include fever, headache, muscle and joint pain, followed by a rash, um, most commonly in the face and the palms of the hands and soles of the feet. And that rash, which is similar to chickenpox, lasts two to four weeks, during which time the patient must isolate. The majority of cases have been men who have sex with men through skin-to-skin contact, but any skin contact with an infected person and contact with their towels and linen may cause infection. And you'll see here the global spread of monkeypox. Japanese encephalitis, there have been 39 cases um, this year in Australia, so that's more than monkeypox. And 29 have been confirmed with definitive laboratory evidence. You'll see they've been in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Victoria. Five deaths have been reported, so it's a very high Case fatality ratio of 13%. The virus is mosquito borne and there are animal reservoirs, water birds, and amplifiers, pigs. Symptoms are typical of encephalitis. The response has been mosquito surveillance and control and vaccination of those at high risk, for example, pig farmers. There is no specific treatment. Finally, diphtheria which is a bacterial infection which releases a toxin, um, which may cause severe upper respiratory distress and a high case fatality ratio. In early July, two young children in northern New South Wales were admitted to hospital. The two-year-old was um, admitted to ICU. Neither was vaccinated. These were the first cases of respiratory diphtheria in Australia this century. Now, this is due to um, vaccine hesitancy. The fully vaccinated coverage at five years of age in the northern New South Wales Health District is 87%, and in the Byron LGA, just 68%, compared with 95% across New South Wales. The past 10 years, there have also been cases of uh, pertussis, whooping cough, which was fatal, measles and tetanus in that northern region. In summary, vaccine hesitancy remains a problem in Australia, particularly in certain areas. But more generally, that's witnessed by the very low COVID vaccination rate in children, 40%, and even lower influenza vaccine uptake, 20%. And I thank you.